Father, we praise you for this morning. We praise you for this time that we have now to look at your word and we ask by your Holy Spirit, would you show us Jesus more clearly, what it means to live for him today? Would we be devoted to him through your word? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, suppose someone who didn't know you very well followed you around for maybe a week or a month and observed the way that you spend your time, your free time, your days off, your time at work. What, what if anything, would they say you are passionate about? What would they say you're devoted to? They might spot, maybe, a devotion to work, if that's you, to going the extra mile with colleagues, I heard recently about how in Japanese culture, the etiquette is that nobody can go home at the end of the day until the most senior manager on the floor leaves. And there, devotion to work means staying at your desk into the evening, even if you've got nothing left to do for the day. And you apparently see offices with people sitting quietly with their arms folded, waiting for their manager to go home. I wonder if it ever feels like that in, in, in London. I think devotion to work maybe comes out in slightly different ways. The constant need to be seen, to be busy, to justify your existence, to prove yourself invaluable in different ways. Maybe somebody following you around would spot that kind of devotion. Or would they spot a devotion to family? You know, keeping the family going at home, driving children between activities and social engagements. It's said that the average UK parent would have spent a solid six months driving their child around by the time the child is 20. Over a distance of 27,000 miles. Maybe if they were following you, they'd spot a devotion to keeping fit, to running, swimming, cycling, to a rigorous routine. Maybe a devotion to Netflix, to box sets, to following football or cricket or whatever it is. A devotion even to your mobile, to social media, to checking email. Whatever it is, after a week or two, a month, certain patterns of devotion would emerge, wouldn't they? And where would God's word the Bible, fit into that pattern? Would it find a place? The reading that we heard, first of all, from Acts outlines a number of things that it was said the first Christians were devoted to. Can you see that in verse 42? On page 1094? It's, it's not just one thing, it's a few things, actually. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, to prayer and sharing of one another... But these are the things which make this group stand out. What they became known for. Those Christians, people said, they are devoted to one another. They listen to the apostles' teaching as if life and death depend on it. They keep on praying whatever is going on. They pray and they give and they share. And we're going to look at these five things over the next few weeks that marked out that devotion. Five marks of a healthy church. The, the first church that was born on the day of Pentecost, which was, we actually celebrated last Sunday. 
And as we look at each of those things that, that mark them out, we're going to springboard out into other passages in the New Testament to see these things spelt out a bit more over the next few weeks. So what all these things they were devoted to. And the question is, how does our devotion today compare to the devotion of the early church? Are we devoted to the same things? And what is the strength of that devotion? That's what we're going to look at over these next few weeks. So today, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. And the apostles' teaching, of course, is what came in the end to be the New Testament that we have now. And in Peter's second letter, written towards the end of his life, and at the point where the apostles were starting to die out, what were they going to do next? Who could they trust? Who would they follow? How could they go on? Well, he's writing to them about the importance of being devoted to the Scriptures. So did you hear that? If you flick forwards now to 2 Peter, where we'll spend the rest of our time, 2 Peter chapter 1, from verse 16, on page 1222. Verse uh, verse, uh, 19 there, he says, We have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So as we reflect on devotion to the word, we need to see first that we must be devoted to the word as to a light in a dark place. As to a light in a dark place. Just take a moment to let that picture of scripture that Peter is using just sink in. Think what it's like to try and find your way around in the dark without a torch. A couple of years ago I found myself late at night looking for a pair of gloves that I had dropped in the middle of a football pitch earlier in the day. I was watching football, not playing, you understand. But I dropped these gloves in the middle of this pitch, and it's pitch black now, and uh, can't see these at all. And not, not only are gloves impossible to see on the ground in the dark, you also don't know if you're about to trip up, you don't know if you're about to put your foot in something unpleasant, you need a torch. And Peter is saying God's word is like a torch. It shows us the way to go. But think about it, he's saying more than that. Because what do you do with a torch in the pitch black when you're looking for gloves or you're looking to where to, to put your feet as you walk? You, know, you don't just take your torch out, turn it on and put it on for a few seconds and then put it back in your pocket and carry on as before, do you? But isn't that so easily what we do with the Bible? You know, quick look, quick scan, tick the box, move on. And Peter is saying, no, you would do well to pay attention. Be devoted, in other words. A torch in a dark place needs to stay on all the time. It needs to stay out of your pocket. You need to hold it out in front of you because every step depends on it. Do the same with God's word, Peter is saying. A day will come when we don't need God's word anymore. The day will dawn, we will know him face to face. Until then, keep it in front of you. Now, what does that actually mean? 
Because you know, if you literally hold the Bible out in front of you, like a torch all day long, and you're walking around like this, you'd be like one of those people in those videos you see on YouTube or whatever, where people looking at their phones as they walk along, and they bump into things. They bump into lampposts and glass doors, and they injure themselves, and it's funny to watch. It's ridiculous. No, it, that can't be what it means. But he's saying, pay attention to that word. Heed what it says at all times, in all places. Of course, that means you've got to know the Bible. You've got to understand what it says. You've got to read and digest and take the time to do that. We need to do that together as a church. We need to do that individually. But it's more than that. It's putting it into practice. You know, so often we have some decision to make, major or minor. And our instinct is, well, you know, the Bible is too hard to understand. It doesn't say anything about this issue. So it stays shut and we go with our own instincts, which ultimately is like trying to find a pair of gloves in a field at night without a torch. It's impossible and more than that, it's foolish. Don't put it away, Peter is saying. If you're not yet following Jesus, it will probably sound utterly ridiculous to treat the Bible like this. Why single out this book over any other? It's nearly 2,000 years old after all and parts of it are a lot older than that. What could it possibly have to say to us today? Why insist that this and this alone can shine light on the path ahead for human beings? Well, that is what we need to see in the rest of these verses. So be devoted to the word, secondly then, because this is how God speaks today. This is how God speaks today. Look at verse 16 there. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now there's something very contemporary about this objection that Peter seems to be addressing here. Remember, the apostles are dying out as he writes this letter. Things are moving on to the next generation, and people are already starting to say, do you know what? This stuff that the apostles wrote, it's made up. Now I've been struck as I've been leading Christianity Explored. We've done it a few times over the last year, you know, once a term, and I've been leading it. And it's often said, you know, that we live in a post-Christian world now, and a post-truth world, we say, don't we? So, and actually, you know, we, we say to each other, oh, well, you know, questions of truth aren't the most important thing for people anymore. And, you know, what matters now is whether something feels authentic for somebody. But actually, in my experience, as I've been doing Christianity Explored with people, actually questions of truth are still right at the top of the list for people investigating Christian things. They want to know if this is all made up. And it's it's a good question, isn't it? It was the same this week when I was talking to a bunch of children on a careers morning at a local primary school. Yes, a primary school had a careers morning. And yes, some children actually wanted to know about being a vicar. Can you believe it? But some of them uh, were actually asking similar questions as we got beyond kind of dog collars and, you know, formalities. Actually, what is Christian ministry about? And we talked, you know, we talked about uh, my job is to help other people come to know Jesus by teaching the Bible. That's my job, you see. And... Well, it comes straight back from the ones who who sort of sit there and and think about what you're saying. But how do you know that this book wasn't written by a monk in the Middle Ages? 
Couldn't it have been fiddled with along the way? And of course, there are all kinds of things you can say to those questions in response to that. But it starts here with Peter. We did not follow cleverly invented stories. We were eyewitnesses. That's the point, isn't it? This is, this is eyewitness testimony. We were there. We saw, and the episode he chooses to highlight is, we saw Jesus' transfiguration. This tra- transfigured. Do you remember about halfway through Mark's Gospel? If you've ever read that, Jesus goes up a mountain with Peter, James and John, and he's transfigured before them. Suddenly they can see him as he really is in all his shining glory. And it's interesting that Peter chooses that event maybe rather than the the resurrection. But it's this event where they see Jesus as he really is. They see, ah, this isn't just a man. This is God on earth as a man in all his majesty. We were there, he says. Verse 18, we heard the voice. And the four Gospels themselves are full of eyewitness detail that it's very unlikely would have been included if someone were making this up. For a start with the Transfiguration, they, re- they record the, the, the crazy questions they asked at the top of the mountain, the kind of things you would say, should we make a shelter here? Peter looks like a bit of a fool at the top of the mountain. He wouldn't put it that way if he wanted to kind of big himself up. In the, there's other things too, you know, in the calming of the storm, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago in Matthew's Gospel. But in, in Mark's Gospel, there's an extra little detail. Jesus has his head on a cushion in the boat as he sleeps. Why, why mention that? Why mention the cushion in Mark chapter 4? What's that there for? It, you, you, it's, it's the kind of thing you wouldn't put it in unless you were telling the story because you were there at the time. That's what you remember about it. It gives us confidence that this is an eyewitness account, these Gospels. And things like the cushion are mentioned because they were there. It's the same in the resurrection accounts. The little details about the empty tomb and what they found and the linen folded up and all these little things that really add much except to say this is eyewitness testimony. You can trust it. Why would people make this up is the question then, isn't it? So I often try and help people to, to understand what, what's in it. If somebody's, going to, if, if somebody's going to claim this is an eyewitness an account and actually they fabricated the whole thing, they, it's a cleverly invented story, as Peter is denying here, what's in it for them? Peter, we understand from historians, was crucified upside down. Other apostles met similar deaths. Wouldn't they at some point have gone, hang on guys, sorry, it's all a myth. If indeed they were just cleverly invented stories. Is that really worth dying for? They thought it was worth dying because they knew what they were telling was the truth. So not cleverly invented stories, eyewitness accounts in the New Testament. But then Peter goes back to the Old to talk about that from verse 19. So it's not just that the New Testament we can be confident about, it's the Old as well. We have the word of the prophets made more certain. What what, what does that mean? It means all that Jesus did fulfilled what the prophets promised. 
And this is really important because it means Jesus didn't just turn up out of the blue one day, claim to be God on earth, claim to be the Messiah. He wasn't like one of those random cult leaders, you know, who turn up every few years saying, oh, you know, I'm God, I'm, I'm the Messiah. You know, the kind of thing. David Icke was, a, you know, a, a while ago now. But people like that who, who turn up and make those kind of claims. Or the guy who, who uh, claimed that the world would end on Sue's birthday about five years ago, four years ago, I think it was. I think it was her. <laughs> you know, what's, what do you do with that? I did still buy a present. I thought that was probably worth it. <laughs> But yeah, people do. They turn up and they make slightly bizarre claims and people just generally ignore it. It's, it's nonsense, apart from the few that get taken in. Was Jesus just another one of those guys? Jesus came as the fulfilment of centuries of promise and prophecy. The prophet said, a king is going to come. They talked about a virgin bearing a child. They talked about Nazareth. They talked about a journey into Jerusalem on a donkey. They talked about how this king would suffer and be rejected. They even used the word pierced. How do we know the Bible is true? Because here is a book, and we call it one book because it's bound together, but it's actually 66 books written over 1,500 years by different human authors. But they come together with one message about a king. The earlier books in the Old Testament promise that this king is going to come and then later, the later books tell us of how he did come in fulfilment of that. Can you see how that sets the Bible apart from other world religions? How it should give us the confidence to believe its message because it authenticates itself as we see the earlier promises come true later. So these prophecies, prophecies, verse 20, came about over hundreds of years at the hand of many different human authors, and yet they were not simply the prophet's own theories, he's saying again. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Bible was fully written by humans, and yet also written by God. There's a kind of analogy there with how Jesus is both man and God. You see, Jesus, we must say Jesus is fully human and experiences hunger and gets tired and, and, and all those things, yet without sin, but also fully God. And there's an analogy there with Scripture. It is a fully human book with all the hallmarks of human uh, literary style and you can see the differences that come from one author writing one book and another one writing another one, but also fully divine, inspired by the Holy Spirit, they wrote, uh, carried along by him. This is how God speaks then today. And so this is how we must pay attention to these words above all other words. And that is why they were devoted, back in Acts chapter 2, to the apostles' teaching, as the apostles spoke to them authoritatively about Jesus as eyewitnesses and as those uniquely inspired by the Holy Spirit, they realised we need to listen to this because God is speaking through his messengers. And this helps us understand why, apologies, we are going to flip back to, to Acts chapter 2, page 1 and 9, 4. Um, this, is, this is why when we read this, and we read this description of what the early church is like, and we think, well, what should we be like as a church? 
We say, well, we should be devoted to the word and to prayer and to giving and so on. But we don't say, verse 43, we should be doing all the wonders and miraculous signs that the apostles were doing back in Acts. I wonder if you spotted that and wondered if we were just sort of fudging things by leaving that out. Do you wonder why that isn't on the list of the marks of a healthy church in the 21st century? The reason is this, because throughout the Bible there are miracles, but they're not evenly distributed. They're clustered around the times when God did something new and revealed himself in a new way. So think of Moses, for example. He did signs and wonders as God revealed himself as the rescuing God who brought his people out of Egypt. And their purpose, the purpose of these miracles, was to authenticate Moses. So they could say, oh yes, look, this is God's true messenger. It's the same with Elijah later on in the Old Testament. See, the thing that makes him different from the prophets of, of Baal is that God really does do signs and wonders through him. And they had this kind of face-off. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 17, at the top of Mount, uh, Mount Carmel, there, there they are, and uh, they, they call down fire, on, and, and, and Elijah deliberately uh, covers his altar in water to make it impossible for any human being to light it. And the prophets of, ba- of Baal are kind of dancing around and doing their thing, and nothing happens, and Elijah prays, and fire comes down and consumes this sodden uh, altar. See, and it's not just a magic trick, it's a sign that he is God's true messenger. And it's the same then with Jesus. The miracles are signposts to his identity, and we've been seeing exactly that in Matthew's Gospel. And then finally, actually, it's the same with the apostles. Do you see? See, the church needed to know that their teaching was authoritative, The church needed to know that their teaching should be taken on the same level as Jesus, as words from God. That's why, by the way, the kind of idea of a red-letter Bible, where you highlight the words of Jesus as if they have a higher standing, actually, that's really unhelpful, really. Because the whole point is, no, actually, the, the words that the apostles spoke as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write what we have in our Bibles today, those words are words from God just as much as the words which we hear from the lips of Jesus. So don't single out those words as somehow different or more authoritative than the red-letter ones. No, the whole Bible as we have it is God's word to us today. And the miracles then are there to authenticate that apostolic word for us. So that is why we we read them here. And that is why we don't see them in such the same way today. Because the Bible is finished. It was finished nearly 2,000 years ago. uh, As the apostolic, as the, the last apostles died. And so, of course, God can still do miracles. There's no denying that. He's God. But there isn't the same expectation because we have God's word, which has been authentically uh, um, inspired and we can be confident about it. So be devoted to God's word. Now, it's one thing people often say about this. Well, you you people in churches who believe this kind of thing, you're bibliolaters. Do you know what that means? This is bibliolatry. It means you're worshipping the Bible. 
I wonder if everyone's, anyone's ever said that to you or implied that. You know, you evangelical Christians, this is what you do. No, 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 we don't worship the Bible. We worship the God who gave us the Bible. It's like someone might treasure a love letter from a lover who's gone away. We treasure God's word, but that's not the same as actually worshipping God's word. We worship the God who, who speaks through his word. But if you have a letter from somebody that uh, you haven't seen and you're, you are uh, so pleased to hear from them, well, you're going to make sure you don't lose it. You're going to hold on to it. You're going to read every word and, and, and pour over it and be devoted to it. And it's the same, do you see? The day will dawn, Peter says in verse 19, when it won't be dark anymore. We can put the torch down. We can bask in the sunlight of seeing God face to face. But until then... Devote yourself to the Word. So, what areas of our life then do we need to consider in relation to that? As a church, this is why we take the Bible seriously. This is why we make make sure there's a decent amount of time in each service to listen to the Bible being taught and proclaimed, because it is God speaking to us. That's why we meet in small groups. Let me encourage you, if you're not part of a small group, to do something about that, to talk to me about different options and ways that that can happen through the week. But it's another way of ensuring that this torch of God's word is not just something we take out on Sundays and then has no impact on the rest of the week. Because in the middle of the week, we are seeking to learn from the Bible and live by it as well. In our pastoral care for one another, it's important to be practical and kind and loving. There are many wonderful examples of that at St. John's when people are ill or in need, and that's really important. But what do any of us need most of all when we are in need or in pain. Of course we need practical love, but we need to hear afresh the hope we have in Jesus from his word. And years ago I took some advice from an older and wiser Christian minister who said he'd never accept an invitation as a minister to go anywhere or do anything which didn't in some way involve teaching or preaching from the Bible. Of course, always in the context of building relationships, always in the context of enjoying being with people and just getting alongside people. But your job is to teach the Bible, he said. And I've tried on the whole to make that a thing, to try and make sure that in some way I'm sharing God's words with people wherever I go. And in one sense, that's a specific thing for people like me who have this particular responsibility. But it applies actually more broadly to all our interactions with each other. We can always ask, how does God, how does his word apply to the conversation I'm having right here, right now? As we speak to one another and seek to build one another up. All these things then apply to us individually as well. In our times reading God's word every day, it's never too late to start reading the New Testament in a year. As we began in January, it's already June, it's unbelievable, isn't it? Um, but if you're still keeping going, you could just start now with the plan on the website. And and these things apply to us as we look beyond ourselves to our nation and perhaps to our denomination, to the Church of England, with all the issues it faces at the moment. Really, the big question is, is this a denomination that is going to be devoted to God's word, or is it going to leave that behind? The 18th century French philosopher Voltaire claimed that in a hundred years from his day, 
the Bible would have passed into the mists of history as people became more liberated and enlightened. That was someone writing in the 18th century, Voltaire. And in fact, when he died, do you know this? The French Bible Society used his actual house to store, as a place to store their Bibles before distributing them, which is kind of ironic. But wouldn't it be tragic if, in fact, it was in the end Christians who ended up fulfilling that prophecy through a form of practical atheism that gives lip service to God's word on Sundays but otherwise ignores his word for the rest of the week? What does the relative airtime we give to the Bible as opposed to social media or online news sites or Netflix or whatever, what what does that say to us about the value we attach to God's word? They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to the word. So may we be known for that same devotion in our lives and in our church today. Let me pray now. Father, we are humbled by this picture of the early church and of how they were devoted to these things. And in particular today, how they were devoted to the word, to the apostles' teaching. We pray that that might be true of us in our individual lives, in our lives as a church. May we hold it out in front of us as a a light in a dark place so that we might know you better, so that the world around us might know you too. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.